you'd like to find Habakkuk chapter 2, we're in verse 5. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 5 in your Bibles. And let's go uh, to the Lord in prayer. This week in my devotions, I was uh, reading of Mary right before the crucifixion of Christ. And she brings her expensive offering uh, to the Lord. She actually gets ridiculed for such an expensive gift uh, to the Lord. And Jesus said, the poor you'll have with uh, you always. But paraphrase, this is a moment in time where she's able to pour out her love uh, to me. And it's a memorial to all generations. And so here we are, years later, thinking about her gift of worship. And as we go uh, to the Lord uh, in prayer, let's just pour out our love upon Jesus and, and thank him for his love for us and his sacrifice. And there's no greater gift than we can give than our heart and our lives. Let's put, put our lives afresh on his altar, giving ourselves as a living sacrifice. So Jesus, we thank you for your love for us. And we stand as, as a church, as brothers and sisters in Christ, to declare we love you. We give ourselves afresh to you. We want you to be on the throne of our lives. We want to be a living sacrifice. We give you our hearts, our minds, our ears. Lord, the resources that we have, the physical resources, they're yours. Our bodies, they're yours. Our talents, they're yours. We thank you for first loving us loving us while we were sinners, while our hearts were hard towards you. Jesus, we pray that you would reveal yourself through the teaching of your word, that you would speak to us. Lord, you know each person. You know what's going on in their life, the challenges, the joys. You meet them in your word. Father, we do pray for our country. As we look at this chapter, we can't help but think of our own nation. Jesus, we pray you would be exalted, that the knowledge of Christ would explode in our land that many would come to know you. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 5. In this book, we find faith and hard questions collide in the life of this prophet. He's wondering why God is not judging all of the wickedness that's taking place in Judah. Ever wrestle with that question? God, when are you going to set things right? Do you see, do you know all of the wickedness that is taking place? God's answer surprised him. I see, I know, I'm going to do a work in your days that is going to astound you. The Babylonians are going to be my tool of judgment for Judah. They're going to take Judah captive. This caused Habakkuk to wrestle even more. Last week, we saw the prophet responding by going to his rampart, to his tower, to seek God in isolation, determination, expecting to hear from God. God, I'm not leaving this place until you speak to me. God says, write down the vision. I want you to make it plain. The just shall live by faith. Living by faith, trusting the Lord. That's what causes us to move forward in the midst of trial. Not that it's easy, not that the difficulty goes away, but it's through trusting God when we're wrestling with God's plan. Things like, well, God, why would you use a wicked people like the Babylonians to judge your own people, the children of Israel? The rest of this chapter, the rest of chapter 2, is a chapter in your devotion. Say you're reading through the Bible and you come to the book of Habakkuk. It's easy to rush through a chapter like this. Because it's God's indictment of wickedness, specifically for the Babylonians. 
Yes, God's going to use them for his purposes, but he's not letting them off of the hook for their rebellion against God and their wickedness. I find this to be really fascinating as we look in the Old Testament, God's dealings with nations. Yes, with Israel, but with nations. And throughout the Old Testament and throughout history, God gets to a certain point where he brings judgment upon wickedness. That was true for the Babylonians. At some point, God in his consistency with his character, there's either going to be a revival that happens in the United States of America, or God is going to indict us with his judgment, if he hasn't already. Because that's his character. That's his, his proven track record. He's a God of love, and in his righteousness, at some point, a society gets so wicked that ultimately he says, I have to deal with this. This morning with my two younger kids, we were reading the Action Bible. It's uh, the Bible in cartoon form. You should pick it up in the bookstore. It's actually really good. And we were at Noah and the story of, of Noah. And when you stop and think about that, it's pretty radical. God judged all of humanity, only left Noah and his family alive because of the wickedness. God saw that the wickedness was so bad that it was time in order to bring the judgment. I think there's a lot of parallels. There's a lot of reflection on our own culture and society that we see in the Babylonians as well. So let's look in verse 5. It says, Indeed, because he transgressed by wine. Speaking of the Babylonians, they, they sin because of alcohol, because of, of wine. This is fascinating. You might want to write down Daniel chapter 5. Belshazzar experiences the judgment of God at a drunken feast. Drunk to the point where he says, bring in those instruments from the temple. We're going to use those holy instruments as part of our party. God then brings his judgment, writes on the wall, meany, meany, tekel you farsen. You've been weighed and found lacking in the balance and in that night, God brought judgment. What was involved in the midst of that judgment was their alcohol. Historians tell us that they liked their alcohol. They loved their, their alcohol. And here God says in his word, they transgressed by wine. Wine, alcohol can cause us to sin against God if used in excess. That's why God tells us, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Can alcohol be used in moderation? Can you enjoy alcohol and not sin against God? Absolutely. But there is that potential with alcohol to get to that place of abuse, huh? Where now we're, we're drunk and now we're doing things that, that we regret. That's a huge issue in our culture and our society, isn't it? How many people are going to die this year from drunk driving, from drunk drivers? Whether the, the driver dies or if they, they hit someone else, I know several families that have lost someone due to, a, due to a drunk driver. They say that Uber and all those things have not reduced drunk driving. You think it, maybe it would. I'll just go ahead and use my app to, to, get, to get a taxi. You've probably experienced it, witnessed it, maybe in your own life personally or observed it. The domestic violence that takes place in a family, usually due to drugs and alcohol. Usually in the midst of, of that abuse, there's, there's drugs and alcohol. So there's a reality there that says there's something to be careful about. I don't want to transgress against God in this freedom that he has given to me. Describing the Babylonians, he's a proud man and he does not stay at home. This is not just speaking of the fact that he missed movie night. 
It's his infidelity. That describes the the Babylonians. He doesn't stay at home. He's not committed to his wife. He's not committed to his kids. Even though he's married and even though he has a family, he he doesn't stay at home. He's out, out running around. He's a proud man. Someone that doesn't see his need for for God. Could you say that our culture and our society is proud? God has blessed us in so many ways as a country, but we don't acknowledge his hand, do we, as a culture and a society? We acknowledge ourselves, our own own hard work. Continuing in verse 5, because he enlarges his desires as hell, and he is like death and cannot be satisfied He gathers to himself all nations and heaps up for himself all peoples. God knows what he's doing. Because the Babylonians are able to go and conquer other lands, but yet they're never satisfied. Quite a description of their dissatisfaction. Enlarges his desire as hell. So the more he desires, the more empty he is. He's like death. Did you know death is never satisfied? Death never goes, well, I got enough. I guess nobody has to die. We all will die at some point, won't we? And that's the condition of the Babylonian's heart, this kind of dissatisfaction where even though they've got all this stuff, they've got so much from all of their military victories, there's no satisfaction inside of their souls. He he gathers to himself all nations and he heaps up for himself all peoples. I see a parallel between the Babylonians and us in dissatisfaction. We may have more monetarily, materially, than the rest of the world, but we're experts at dissatisfaction. We're experts at discontentment. If you make $11,000 a year, annual household income, if you took everybody in your family and it came to $11,000, do you know you'd be in the top 14% of the world? Top 14% of the world. If your household income is $34,000, you're in the top 1% of the world. You are in the most wealthy category of the whole entire world with an annual household income of $34,000. The average American household income is $50,000. Now I know if you make $11,000 a year, how difficult it is to survive. You're saying, man, I don't feel like I'm in the the top 14%. $34,000 with the family, man, it's tight. I don't know how I'm going to make it. But what I, I want us to see is a broader perspective. We have so, so very much. Spend time with these kids in this video and their grass huts, and their dirt floors, and we start to realize how much that we really have from a physical perspective. But yet, we have a leanness of soul, don't we? We can get more and more and more and more and more, but yet be dissatisfied. Why? Because stuff can't satisfy. Our souls were designed by God where we can only find rest in a relationship with him. This Wednesday night, we're going to be looking at Philippians chapter 4, where Paul says that he's learned contentment. Because when is enough enough? When do you have enough money in the bank? When are you physically fit enough? When is there a big enough house, nice enough things? Apart from Christ, we don't get, get to that point, do we? It's something that we have to learn. 
And through Christ, we can do all things. Ask yourself that question tonight. Are you content? Are you satisfied in the Lord? Remember the man that Jesus addressed and he said, you can gain the whole world, but lose your soul. He, yes, is talking about his eternal destination, but he's also talking about here, right now, he's saying, you're miserable. You've gained the whole world, but your soul's dead because you don't know me and you're not walking with me. Some of you know this because when you receive Christ as your savior, from a worldly perspective, you had it all, but you knew in your heart and your life that you were missing it. And you came to know Christ and Christ set your heart alive for him. There's nothing wrong with the stuff. It's not sinful to have the stuff. It's not sinful to be in that top 14% that we, we didn't get to choose that we were born in the United States of America. So, so that, that's not the, the sin. The sin is in the condition of my heart, whether I'm making the stuff my God or not. Enjoying my relationship with the Lord, being satisfied with him, and then being able to use that stuff in a godly and appropriate way. But a lot of parallels there in the dissatisfaction between the Babylonians and what we see in our own culture. That was God's way of dealing with the Babylonians. You can have all this stuff, but you're going to be dissatisfied. In verse 6, will not all these take up a proverb against him and a taunting riddle against him and say, woe to him who increases what is not his, how long? And to him who loads himself up with many pledges. The way that the Babylonians prospered is by taking things that didn't belong to them. And ultimately, that was going to come back to haunt them, to come back to get them. In verse 7, Will not your creditors rise up suddenly? Will they not awaken who oppress you? And you become their booty. There's probably a better translation than that, but we are reading from the New King James tonight. So. Where does your mind go when you read, Will not your creditors rise up against you? suddenly. This was a way that God was going to deal with the Babylonians that all of a sudden everybody's going to say, okay, it's time to pay up all of your accounts. I'm sure that you're aware of our national debt. There's a website that you can go to that is a active living calculator of the debt going up. Checked it out yesterday. Our national debt is 19.4 trillion and rising by the second. You sit there and watch it and it just goes. That means that everyone that is living in the United States of America would have to pay $59,845 per person in order to just meet that national debt. If we just went for taxpayers... It would be $162,252. What if our creditors rose up against the United States of America suddenly? Said, okay, it's time to pay up. If you don't pay up, bam, here you go. I don't know about you, but I'm a little concerned that one of our biggest creditors is China. You know? We know we have difficulties with China. We know that they're not too fond of us, all these type of things, but we'll take their loans. What's an easy way for China to deal with us? Here's some more money. Just borrow some more money. 
borrow some more money. Here you go. And then all of a sudden, what do they do? Okay, why don't you pay it all back right now? I think that, again, we find an incredible parallel between the Babylonians and the United States of America. Simply one of the ways that God could bring judgment upon our country if there's not a great revival is simply to allow us to experience the consequence of our debt. As individuals, we we struggle in America with debt, don't we? There's a website that goes through all of the the debt that we we have in a household. The average household has 15,000 in credit card debt, 168,000 in mortgage, 27,000 in auto loans, 48,000 in student loans, and 130,000 altogether. So the average household uh, debt, when you begin to combine these numbers, the average household is paying $6,658 per year in interest. So almost $7,000 a year uh, is going to interest. 9% of the average household income is being spent on interest. If you took the numbers 75,000, they're paying 9% uh, towards their debt. What does God have to say about debt? Proverbs 22, verse 7, it says, The rich rules over the poor, and the borrower is servant to the lender. And that's true, isn't it? In Romans 13, verse 8, it says, Owe no man anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. Maybe you're in that place and you're going, Yeah, I'm discouraged by the national debt, but I'm also discouraged by personal debt. What if all of my creditors said, okay, you've got to pay up this month. You've got to pay up in in two weeks. Be encouraged. God can do great things. And Jesus tells us to be faithful in the small things, doesn't he? Because when you're faithful with the small things, then he'll entrust you the true riches of God. Do you know one of the ways that God determines whether he's going to trust to us the things that really matter, the spiritual riches, is on how we handle money. That, that's in that context about money. God's saying, be faithful with money so then that I can give you the real true riches about my character. You go, man, I'm so overwhelmed with the debt that I have. Just say, Lord, I'm going to begin to take action at this and whittle away and do a little bit here and a little bit there. Put together a budget, start to look for tools that can be helpful, and you'll find God work in, in an incredible way but it is symptomatic of a problem inside of a society. And that's what I want you to see tonight. I don't want you to experience personal condemnation. I, I want you to be moved by the Lord and allow God to say, look, I can, I can do a great work in your, in your area of, of finances. But the way that we spend as Americans, as individuals, and the way that our country lives off of debt is a problem, isn't it? And it's something that has developed over, over generations. And it's a almost haunting question in verse 7, will not your creditors rise up suddenly? In verse 8, because you've plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you. Because of men's blood and the violence of the land and the city and of all who dwell in it, you reap what you sow. You think about the land, the field. The field doesn't care what is placed in it. If corn is placed, it'll reap corn. If you decided that you wanted to grow poison oak or poison ivy, it would yield poison oak and poison ivy. 
It's not biased. It says, okay, I'll, I'll take whatever you decide to plant. And the same way with the Lord. He's like, here's the field. What do you want to plant? And the Babylonians, they went around plundering people, destroying these nations. So God says, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you. Someday, Babylonians, you're going to reap what you sow. And as a country, as a society, as a people group, there's a point where we reap what we sow. What, what we've done to others, God will allow to be done to us as well. A point on this is Adonai Bezek in Judges chapter 6. Adonai Bezek fled and they pursued him and, and caught him and cut off his thumbs and big toes. This is the book of Judges. I didn't make this up. Chapter 1. They catch him and they cut off his thumbs and big toes. And Adonai Bezek said, 70 kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off, used to gather scraps under my table. So he took 70 kings and took, cut off their toes and their big thumbs and said, you're just going to clean up the scraps underneath my table. As I have done, so God has repaid to me. They brought him to Jerusalem and there he died. Did you, did you understand that from a pagan king? Adonai Zedek, and he says, this is the way I treated people. So now I'm reaping what I sow. Again, there's a, a national application, but there's a personal application to say, how do I treat people? Am I someone that just goes around and plunders and takes? Eventually, I'm going to reap what I sow. If I live by the sword, I'm going to die by the sword. And verse 8 is the beginning of four series of woes. Woe to him who covets evil gain for his house, that he may set his nest on high, that he may be delivered from the power of disaster. Don't covet evil gain. Maybe you know someone who practices evil and it seems like they're getting ahead. Don't covet that. Woe to him who covets evil gain. This really stood out to me in verse 10 in correlation to our culture and our society. You give shameful counsel to your house, cutting off many people and sin against your own soul. Church, brothers and sisters in Christ, what kind of counsel is the United States of America giving to its own home? What are, we, what are we saying about family life? It's things like, well, you know, it doesn't even really matter if you get married or not. It's probably a good idea for you to go ahead and live together before you get married so you can test, test things out. Do you know how many young people hear that from their parents or mentors or people that they're looking to counsel for? That's how they're being advised of how to do their home. We, we hear things like this all the time. It's being portrayed even inside of the church. Oh, you're not happy inside of your marriage? Well, why don't you just go ahead and leave? Because God wants you to be happy. And I'm just... Like, where is that in Scripture? Where, where do we find that in, in the Word of God? I've been looking for that somewhere, that God just wants me to be happy, because that would sure help out my theology, Team Eric, a whole, whole lot, right? But when I read it, it says that God wants us to be holy. That's what he's calling us to. He's calling us to holiness. But this is the counsel that's being given to the house. In verse 10, it says, you give shameful counsel to your house. We can define marriage any way we want. This is the counsel of America 
to the house. And in fact, we even push this on other nations to say, you don't have to accept God's definition of marriage, that it's between a man and a woman. We'll go ahead and just change things altogether. We'll say marriage can be man with a man, woman with a woman. And then what's the next logical step? Why not question God on your gender as well? Because if we can redefine marriage and we can say it can be but this, then why not go ahead and just challenge God on your gender as well? That's one of the core ways to challenge the Lord. God made you male. God made you female. We didn't choose that. He chose that from the womb. And then we go to God and say, God, I don't want to be a man. I don't want to be a woman. I'll, I'll go ahead and just change my gender. Talk about dissatisfaction and discontentment. It's gone to the very nature of gender. And this is the counsel that we're giving to the house, to the home. You don't, you don't want to have this child? This child's inconvenient for you, doesn't fit into your lifestyle? Well, we'll just go ahead and get an abortion. How many women are getting that counsel this evening in this city from people that they look to and they trust? And as a whole, you would have to say the counsel going into the home is shameful. That's why it's so important for us to get into God's word and to see what God's word has to say for the family. Amen? Say, I want to line up my life with what God has to say because culture has it all wrong. Look at the end of verse 10. It says, and sin against your own soul. So here we are giving our own counsel, the shameful counsel, but what's being destroyed? The soul's being destroyed. Habakkuk's going, the Babylonians are getting away with it. And God's saying, they're not getting away with anything. Their creditors are going to catch up with them. They've been acting in violence. That's going to catch up with them. The shameful counsel that they're giving to the home is going to catch up with them. They're sinning against their own soul. That's why I love holiness. That's why God loves holiness, because it's wholeness. It's good. We talked about the goodness of God. He gives us a great message, and that's where we find life, and we find it more abundantly. Jesus was a man that was filled with joy. Hebrews 1 verse 9 says he was anointed with gladness above all of his fellows because he hated wickedness and he loved righteousness. Have you ever regretted righteousness in your life? It leads to wholeness, doesn't it? Instead of the shameful counsel of the world, the godly counsel which we're able to build our lives upon. In verse 11, it says, For the stone will cry out for the wall, and the beam from the timbers will answer it. Woe to him who builds a town with bloodshed, who establishes a city by iniquity. The analogy, the allegory here is even the timbers cry out, even the buildings cry out that this isn't the way things should be done. Babylonians, you can't take a city by bloodshed and iniquity. In verse 13, Behold, is it not of the Lord of hosts that the peoples labor to feed the fire and nations weary themselves in vain? There comes a point in a culture, in a society, in a group of people where they say, we're going to do this apart from God. We're going to stoke the fire apart from God. We're going to make the engine of economy work without the Lord. We got this. And what does God say? He says, you're doing it in vain. The nations weary themselves in vain. Psalms 127 says, unless the Lord builds a house, they labor in vain who build it. 
unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. What I get concerned for, for our culture and our country, is we've made it clear to the Lord, we don't want you involved in our society. We'll do it ourselves. And God will honor that. He'll say, okay. You don't want me in your government? Fine. You don't want me in your schools? Okay. You don't want me in your families? I get it. You don't want me in your thoughts? All right. You can fuel the fire on your own and let us attempt things apart from God. Now, this is what I hope, is that it'll cause a stirring in people to say, I need the Lord. Doesn't that define our lives to some extent before we knew Christ as our Savior? We tried it on our own. It didn't go so good. God in his love let us beat our head against the wall a few times. As parents, sometimes we let our kids learn, don't we? We let them learn the hard way. Say, I've told you, I've instructed you, now, now here's your chance. There's great logic in shoes. I, I know you don't think that there's great logic in shoes, but just go try it without shoes for a little bit. Dad, I'd really like to wear my shoes, right? And so hopefully that brokenness leads us to a place of crying out to the Lord. In verse 14, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Is this what you expected in verse 14? It's not what I expected. Here we are reading of the depravity of the Babylonians and God's judgment upon the Babylonians. And then all of a sudden, you see God bring peace. It says, look, the knowledge of the Lord is going to be filled through the whole earth as the water covers the sea. We do know where all of this is leading, and it's to the knowledge of the Lord. If Christ doesn't return in our lifetime, it's God's desire to bring the knowledge of the Lord in our land. If Christ does return, it's going to be the explosion of the knowledge of the Lord. Even in the midst of this chaos, even in the midst of this judgment, the earth is going to be filled with the knowledge of the Lord. The earth comes to understand the greatness of God as the Babylonians are, are dealt with in the Lord's judgment. Another woe. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbor, pressing him to your bottle, even to make him drunk, that you may look on his nakedness. Sound familiar? We're not the first ones to come up with this kind of sexual perversion. The Babylonians were known for it. I'm going to get my neighbor drunk just so I can expose their nakedness. Sick sexual perversion that we see rampant in our culture and in our society. In verse 16, you are filled with shame instead of glory. Everyone look at the Babylonians and go, they're so powerful, they're filled with glory. God says they're filled with shame. You also drink and be exposed as uncircumcised. The cup of the Lord's right hand will be turned against you and utter shame will be on your glory. I don't want to be too graphic, but verse 16 is literal, folks. These guys are uncircumcised. They're getting drunk off their cans, and here they are laying out naked, and everybody's like, those dudes are uncircumcised. I just, I went there, I'm sorry, but that, that's the reality of what verse 16 is telling us. It says, the cup of the Lord's right hand will be turned against you. So you get this picture of this cup. It's being filled up with God's judgment, with God's indictment, with his his righteous judgment upon the Babylonians. Habakkuk, they're not going to get away with it. They're going to be used as a tool to deal with Judah's rebellion, but they're not going to get away with their 
wickedness. And that's true in an individual's life and a society's life unless we turn to the Lord in repentance by our own choices. We're just filling up that that cup of judgment. In verse 17, for the violence done to Lebanon will cover you and the plunder of beasts which made them afraid because of men's blood and the violence of the land and the city and of all who dwell in it. The destruction that happened to Lebanon would happen to Babylon as well. Another one of God's indictments is their idolatry. What profit is the image that its maker should carve? The molded image, a teacher of lies, that the maker of its mold should trust in it to make new idols. Woe to him who says to wood, awake, to silent stone arise, it shall teach. Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, yet in it there is no breath at all. This is the foolishness of idolatry. Here you can make your idol. You can create your idol. Now you're worshiping the creation of your own hands. How's that idol then going to save you? How's that idol going to bring wisdom and guidance in your life? But we do it all the time, don't we? It's basically idolatry is the worship of self. I'm worshiping something that I've created that can't keep me accountable. In verse 20, but the Lord is in his holy temple Let all the earth keep silent before him. This is how the chapter ends. The Lord is upon his throne. The Lord is in his holy temple. Be still before him. Let the nations take their proper place before the Lord. A message like this may cause you a lot of consternation. You're like, Eric, if I'm hearing you right, you're sure sounding like there's judgment coming towards the United States of America. I don't know. I hope not. But my job is to read God's word and teach it. Read God's word and teach it. This may surprise you, but these aren't messages that I really enjoy giving. It's the part of teaching the Bible verse by verse. How many sermons have you heard in church on the book of Habakkuk, right? So we have to wrestle with the scripture. We have to go, why does God record this in his word for all time? This is the wickedness of the Babylonians. This is the wickedness that we see in our own land. What's our response? And this is what I would pray first, is in each and every one of us, of our own hearts and our own lives, is how much of Babylon's wickedness do I find in my own life? Because it's easy to point the finger at culture. Culture gives us a lot of material, doesn't it? But to look at my heart, my life, and go, God, where have I allowed wickedness to come in, come into my life? And as the Lord begins to reveal things and things are uprooted, to confess those things to the Lord and turn to God. As believers, if we're in a place of dissatisfaction and discontentment, Lord, would you help me with this? I want to learn to be content. Maybe we felt like money is not connected to a relationship with God. And tonight we look at the word and we go, wow, God's holding them accountable for how they used money. God's going to hold me accountable as a believer for how I use money. It says a lot about my character. It says a lot about my behavior. Okay, there's, there's things there that I need to deal with. The sexual perversion, the, the drunkenness, the idolatry. God's exposing those things. Okay, Lord, I want to walk with you. I get the sense 
that God's heart for us as believers is to press in with him and walk with him. That's what I get excited about the times that we live in, is it's no longer cultural to be a Christian. And you know what that's going to do is it's going to refine us, isn't it? And it's going to cause us to press in the Lord. And I think the other response is this should cause us to pray for our nation. When we say that a lot and we, we have rallies, and, but in a real personal way, to be broken over the condition of our nation and to pray and believe that God could do a work. I believe that right now in our country, it's very fertile ground for there to be a revival, for people to look to Jesus Christ instead of looking to other things, to pray and introduce people to Jesus. We're on mission. Just as much as if you lived in Uganda, just as much as if you lived in Czech Republic, you pick your country. I don't know that you can find too many more dark spiritual countries than where we are right now. I talked with some missionaries today. They've been in another country for 14 years. They just moved back and they said, this is a different America than we left 14 years ago. It's palatable. The change you can taste, you can feel, it's right in front of our very eyes, isn't it? And I'll be the first to admit, it's difficult for me to reach out to people that don't know Christ outside of these four walls. It's real easy for me to share the gospel when it's a monologue. You know, you want to have a conversation? Well, you just got a conversation with the security team, right? You know, it's like, it's easy to share the gospel in that. But people that I'm in relationship, people that I may not know, as the Spirit of God's moving in my heart and my life to take risk, to introduce them to Jesus Christ, to really care for them, whether they're a stranger or a neighbor or a coworker or a family member, to really care for them, to not just have them be a box that I check off and really engage and say, God, how can I be used by you to enter them into a relationship with Jesus Christ? And there is the challenge, to pray and share. God, would you give me opportunities this week to share Christ, to speak of his glory, to speak of his goodness, because I believe people are hungry and they're desiring to listen and the opportunity is great. So let's stand and pray and seek to apply these things in our lives. Father, we look at the wickedness tonight of Babylon, and we want to look at our own hearts and our own lives. We know it's so easy for us to be affected by culture and our own sin and to adopt the world's views for our lives. God, would you expose the things that need to change and would you change us through the power of your might? Where there is a need for repentance, we pray that it would take place. We're humbled over how wickedness has multiplied in our society over the last even 10 years. Father, as we look at your word, we do see your clear character that there is a point where you bring judgment on a country, on a society, on a group of people. And Lord, we would pray that you would be merciful to us, but that there would be a move of repentance, 
God, I know that you can't just continue to pour out mercy and grace if there isn't a change that takes place in this country. So Lord, we, we want to be a part of it. We know your ultimate goal is to introduce people to yourself. So would you fill us with your spirit? Would you give us a heart for the lost? Would you renew in us a heart for the lost? Or would you forgive us as a country for kicking you out? So this small group of people tonight, we say, God, we do want you in our government. We do want you in our schools. We want you in our homes. We don't want the counsel of the world. We want your counsel in our homes. We want you in the business world. We need you. We cry out to you. We pray for our community. Lord, would you give us opportunities to share Christ in our neighborhoods, in our workplace, with strangers. We pray for a type of move of your spirit that we see in the book of Acts. Lord, and we don't want to forget about the nations. We pray that as a country, we could continue to be a blessing to the nations, that we could send missionaries, that we could be a light unto the world, that our church would be used to impact wherever you would desire. So we wait upon you and we enter into this time of worship. In Jesus' name, amen.